A sound check can be a very good place to record an album. Many, many, many bands have done that in the past. This podcast comes to you because I was going to interview a man that you've heard from before on this channel, a man called Alex Johnson. He goes by a citizen journalist. He's done a lot of investigative work over the years, and he's a very, very fascinating human being with lots and lots and lots of research that he's looked at. Basically, he deals with sort of the edge of, I don't want to say reality, like, you know, like a kind of a, like reality, like you would think of as, as though it were psychotropic drugs or something, but certainly reality in terms of what's actually happening in the world. I think that's fair to say. This podcast deals with essentially conversations he's had and, and also research into basically the internet and his own recollections of what the internet used to be. And it comes with a very strong not safe for work warning. Let me just say right now, if you're listening to this with children or if you're listening to this at work, where everybody can hear it, I strongly recommend that you pause and put on a set of headphones or maybe give this one a skip or listen to it at another point. Um, Alex talks about a very interesting conversation he had with somebody who was researching basically the FBI's role in essentially policing child pornography and that's kind of when this podcast took a turn from a sound check into an actual podcast that I thought you guys needed to hear, and it was certainly very fascinating. Anyway, um, Alex is also going to be a guest on this channel again, and I thought you guys needed to hear this, but as I've already said... This comes with a very strong not safe for work warning. And I actually was inspired to change the warning for my channel to not safe for work or explicit because of this podcast mainly and some of the heavy themes that it deals with. So if you're somebody that doesn't want to hear uh, heavy themes, uh, I strongly recommend uh, either giving this one a skip or listening to it later. Or certainly, if you're listening to it out loud, I would certainly put on a pair of headphones. Anyway, another thing I want to talk about with this podcast is that the Jared that Alex refers to is Mr. Jared Fogel, who is an inmate in a federal correctional facility in Littleton, Colorado. His, he it was charged and convicted of traveling through states and to other states for the purposes of having sex with underage girls and also for distributing child pornography. And this comes up in the context of Alex discussing a very fascinating conversation he had had with a researcher who was looking into the FBI's role in essentially catching child pornographers.
So with the various trigger warnings and not safe for work tags put in place, I present to you Alex and Ben talk about the internet, the name of this podcast. Again, this is very not safe for work and is quite strong. And if you're somebody that either doesn't care to listen to this or can't listen to it for various reasons, I strongly recommend that you stop the podcast and maybe pick it up at a later date. Bye-bye. Okay, we're recording. This is Ben and Alex recording. Okay, Alex, I need you to talk. Yep, this is me talking about stuff. Yay, okay. Now, what were you saying earlier about the uh, the lady Oh yeah, so, in the district? Right, so, you know, uh, yeah, so there's... Hang up the phone, Alex. Hang oh. up the phone. All right, hold on. Uh, this phone just locked. All right. Okay, so, yeah, so basically, yeah, I was just saying that, you know, I didn't know that she was one of the key supporters until, uh, you know, she won the Republican primary, but the, you know, the, the weird thing is that, right, because, uh, you know, that was supposed to be on November 4th, but then we just got, uh, actually, it just happened this weekend, so, like, on Friday, uh, there's a story that came out that says that the, the her Democratic challenger just dropped out of the race, so a lot of people are suspecting foul play, but it's... Uh, it might just be a case of incredibly just, you know, terrible timing. Apparently he was uh, already, you know, in divorce court and he, you know, got multiple houses. Only one of them was in this district. And apparently his wife really wanted a house that was in this district. And apparently that's also the house that he used to register, you know, campaign. So with him, you know, losing the ownership of the house, uh, he apparently had to drop out which I still feel is weird. Uh, it, it seems like one of those things where, you know, I can't imagine anyone doing something like this, like maliciously on purpose. So I'm just like, he was, if he's a resident of the district, when he started running, if he wins, just let him move. But apparently, uh, allegedly it doesn't work like that. I haven't seen anyone that's actually like gotten into like the rules, but uh, apparently that's what happened. I think you can live in the state, but I don't think you can live out of the state. Now you don't think they let you move? I don't know what they let you do in Georgia. I know Georgia is uh, pretty backwards in a lot of respects, but I don't know if they let you do that. Yeah, it's uh, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of weird stuff about the like you know nitty gritty of local politics that just never seems to have come up before. And then, like, in the last couple of years, or even with, like, Kemp, I, I mean, it's just one of those things where it, it's, of all the things that you, you know, that you ever wanted to, like, look up and didn't have the time, there's just some things where it's like, why would I look this up? Like, if you're the Secretary of State, and, you know, you find out that, okay, State Secretary of State is in charge of the Board of Elections, how can you be allowed to run for any other office while you're Secretary of State? Like, that just seems like that's a clear conflict of interest that you're like, yeah, I was you're like, absolutely right. Yeah. And that's one of those things where like when I, when he got elected, like I, I didn't know he was this, like, I was like, I heard somebody say something, but I was like, well, you know, I, I like, there's it's not like there's only one camp. Like there's probably like five guys named Smith in the state legislator. And then somebody was like, Oh, well, you know, he's also the, the, you know, the head of the board of elections. And I'm like, hold on. 
So you mean to tell me in an election that was won by 1%, the guy certifying the election results declared himself the winner? And I was like, well, maybe there's there's got to be some other layer to it. And I looked into it and I was like, oh, the person that's over the state, like there's no there's no actual person. There's there's no one in between the secretary of state and the board and the state board of elections. Like it's the same person because the board of elections isn't like a like there isn't anything to do like day to day for, you know, for a four year term. So they gave that job to someone else. And I'm like, he literally declared himself the winner. Like the, he, it, he didn't even like order someone else to do it. Like it's him. And I'm like, how, how did no one notice this before? Like, why was that a loophole that was even there? Like it's, yeah. I mean, Georgia politics, I mean, it has a long and proud history of being crazy. I mean, you know, look at the three governors or what was it? The four governors or three governors or whatever the hell. I would imagine a lot of white people have a lot of people in the queue. I mean, it does seem I guess to maybe, have, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's the whole... I feel like it's also like a... Like, I, I feel like there's a, like a specific demographic. Like, I mean, I, I know it's big. Uh, I haven't really gotten like too big into it. But I remember like during the Obama administration, there was the, uh, the whole Jade Helm conspiracy theory thing. And I mean, it was all people making things up, but it all seemed to be there were a lot of people claiming that they were, that they lived near a, a certain, like a specific group of bases in Texas. And they claimed that they were seeing things. And so I guess like on the one hand, you might say that like, there's no reason to believe that any part of the story is true. You know, if they're, if they're going to lie about what was happening, you know, near the base, you know, they could also have all been lying about Texas. But I, I thought that it was, you know, like I mentioned to you earlier that like I was I've always thought that conspiracy theories are kind of like cool as like a form of literature. So like I, I read up, you know, read about read up about a lot of stuff. And the one thing that a lot of people that study it have noticed is that there's. There's there's always you know, people are always going to try to dodge things that make that make the story specific and, you know, like fact checkable, you know, so. No one will tell you, like, you know, the, the joke that we always heard, like, in the 90s is that this is something that happened to a friend of a friend. You never get the guy's name. You don't get a description. Like, no one's even willing to say, oh, well, uh, this guy, John, you know, it's always, you know, it was always like, here's something that happened to a friend of a friend. Uh, it happened a couple of years ago. Uh, they would, you know, there's all the, uh, they call them like chain letters where they tell you four or five times, this is true. You can look it up and they keep saying you can look it up, but they never actually give you the thing that you could actually like look up. So when the Jade home thing came out, I was just like, Oh, they picked a state. They named an actual base and they, they mentioned something that was like, I mean, you're, they're always going to distort like, you know, true things. But I was like, wow, they, they really went the extra mile on this one to almost make it look like, there's something going on and i just remember thinking at the time like i should follow up on this and see if there's like is this a, a, a texas specific you know conspiracy theory that's getting bigger or and then I, I just totally forgot about it and then now that same group of people has have morphed into this huge thing and i was like ah i should have been following them the whole time i wish whenever we do do this i wish you would bring that up because oh, yeah. i don't know what the history of QAnon is I don't know, I mean, like, I think, so, like, the thing is that, 
the the reason why that these stories you know get big is because there's like there's something there's something in there that's interesting or that people want to believe but then there's also just like the the, the i feel like probably like the best conspiracy theories there's always going to be something where like if you really wanted to like fact check certain things the ones that really survive are the ones that it's kind of like um like i, I forget the whole thing but i remember like there's a very specific magic trick where if you that like there's a way to manipulate someone into picking like a specific in, like a specific number or like a specific card it's it's sort of like the same thing you give somebody five details and it all sounds like crazy but if you're the type of person that's going to like i'm going to pick one of these things and i'm going to try to like find it they kind of like shift you towards looking into one thing like the the thing that you're going to be like well if this is true the whole thing could be true and then you look into it and that turns out to be true no one like the average person or not even like like most 99% of people when they're in that situation they're not going to look up the other four things because they're so shocked that this thing was crazy and turned out to be true but then there's also just like like the reason why those things happen to begin with isn't because people are i mean there are people like trying to like lie and mislead and all that kind of stuff but there's just these weird nuggets of information out there that someone will pick up and it's isolated from everything else and it's hard to figure out like what to do with that and so people will start talking to folks and they'll be like hey like what do you like what does this mean so gsu i met someone that was actually uh doing like a master's degree studying uh like how the fbi breaks up child pornography rings and one of the things that he told me and like like this whole conversation like burned in my brain and one of the things he told me is that uh in the 80 or he's like he's like if you go all the way back to like the 50s and 60s when a lot of these things were first coming to light, there were uh, there were a lot of psychologists that came out and said, you know, if you take these people to jail and if you punish them, they're not going to get any better because it's just like, you know, other kinds of criminals. And, you know, people will say that, you know, a guy that steals your car doesn't have any morals, but we can afford to have that guy back on the street trying to steal a car again. We can't afford to have pedophiles relapsing and so what happened is there is this nationwide effort to say hey instead of sending these people to prison put them in insane asylums and we'll study them and we'll talk to them and we'll like we'll figure this out and like we promise that we're gonna like we're gonna cure these people and so then you'll be able to release them and then everything will be okay so they ran that for about 20 years and then finally like in the 70s the you know all these you know like apa and lobbyist groups came out and says you know we're sorry we apologize uh we don't know if this can be cured, but we know we can't do it now and we're not close. So we want the laws to be changed. We want you to, like, we want the people that are in these asylums now, we're going to hand it back to you, like, whatever the legal process is. Like, we're, we're sorry that we advocated for this before. Uh, you got to throw them in jail now. So all this kind of stuff kind of ended up on the FBI, where the FBI was just randomly told, hey, uh, so these people that weren't locked up, like, we have no legal way of just putting them in prison. So these guys are just going to go free and we want you to like start tracking them. So the FBI is like, we don't even have a, a child pornography, like a bureau. Like you're just going to toss like a thousand offenders out. And they're like, yeah, deal with it. So the FBI spent a whole bunch of time uh, playing a game of whack-a-mole that lasted for like a decade. And eventually in the eighties, there was some agent that was like, Hey, you ever notice how like, here's, Here's a guy selling this video with this like little girl in it, and we bust him, 
and we burn all the stuff, but we had like records and all that. So we can say, okay, this guy bought from this guy. And the guy's like, yeah. And he's like, Hey, don't we see the same videos just popping up over and over again? And then, and, you know, he's in a meeting and everybody's like, yeah, but you know, that's, you know, they're just sick and they're like, and they're like, you know, mailing videos to people. And the guy's like, no, no, no. What I'm saying is we've been just taking this shop down and then someone else shows up with the same material because they go, people go from being buyers to sellers when they find out that the guy they are buying from is gone, they just start selling their stuff. And that's why there's this core of things that we all recognize, even though we've destroyed the tapes. Because we go in there, you start the tape, and then as soon as you see a kid, you're like, all right, I'm going to stop the tape. And then we're going to say this is a kid wearing a red t-shirt with the number 13 on it. But because we keep seeing reports with that description on it, we know that we're busting people that have the same material. And the guy's like, yeah, but like, what do we, like, what do we do about that? Like, we got to take them off the streets. We got to burn the materials. And basically this guy, he, he, you know, he got promoted and he ended up like a head of, the, head of this division because his whole thing was, hey, instead of taking their stuff and burning it and burning all these, or burning all these records or arresting everybody, what if we go to Congress and we say, we want the ability to take over this uh, child porn ring. So it's like, here's what we're going to do. Instead of busting everybody, what we do is we seize the, we arrest the guy. We don't let people put this on the news. We take all of the material. We get his uh, buyer list. And then when somebody calls us and says, hey, uh, I want to buy so-and-so, we just sell it to him. And everybody's like, well, no, because then the F- that means the FBI is selling child porn. And he's like, no, we let it run for a year a full calendar year. And then at the end of the year, when we have new buyers that weren't on the list before, you know what we do? We go and bust that guy. But when we bust that guy, we frame him. We don't just bust the guy that we just sold the porn to. We take the stuff, like we don't even have to move anything. We go to his house, we jack his stuff, and we tell the people on the nightly news, that guy is running the child pornography ring. And everybody's like, oh, snap. So the way things, and so he, yeah, they went this, because like I said, like, obviously this is like, if the FBI did this and didn't tell anyone, it would just look like they were all like sick pedophiles. So they got this cleared at like the highest level of government. And this guy was telling me that like, basically what happens is this has created an, like the, he says like some of the pedophiles have maybe they've sort of figured it out, but like at this point, you know, there's, they don't have any, they don't have a way to, to fix this problem, which is why, which is obviously that's the position the FBI wants them to be in. But it has also created this thing where sometimes where they're all paranoid. So they know that the uh, so at this point, the guy was telling me that the FBI estimates that they are actually behind something like 80 percent of child pornography production or not production, but of distribution in America. So that means that if you go online and you see something that you think is child porn and you decide to buy it, there's literally like a 75 to 80% chance that you're buying directly from the FBI. So what that means is that at any given time, there is literally a place in DC where there's a guy who in his office, he just has like a giant wall of like pictures of pedophiles of names. Like they know these people, but the, the operating procedure is that they sit on the information for a year. And then when that op gets basically like, you know, you start off as, when you join this unit, they're like, okay, you're going to be the guy that busts people. And then you become the guy that's like, you're not like looking at the porn, but you're just like, all right, we're going to give you the tapes. We're putting the tapes in your office. You know, you keep the catalog. And then if somebody, like, if we need to sell someone a physical tape, you're going to log out that like, I'm selling this tech, this tape to register pedophile 14 or whatever. 
And so basically what this means is there's somebody in DC that's like, that just has a list of names, addresses, they might have, you know, and they're, they're going to pick the fall guy. So when they pick the fall guy, they go to him and they say, okay, we're going to get pictures. We're going to get surveillance, all this kind of stuff. We're going to send him the thing on a signed mail. And then we're going to, when the carrier shows up, we're going to have him, we're going to get a picture of him taking the picture from the mail. So with the Jared thing, a lot of these cases, people are always just like, man, like, how do you bust someone for something like this? It's supposed to be so secretive. Like, it's not like anyone was just in his house and saw this, right? Like, he's not stupid. He's going to have it locked up. You know, he's not going to tell anyone. And there's no pedophile meetings you can go to, right? So when you're seeing the stuff on the news, it always just feels like, man, the FBI is just on their shit. The local cops are just on their shit. Wow. Like, because how do you know that Jared's a pedophile? Like, you've got no way to figure any of this stuff out, right? And it just seems like, man, they're just out there and they're just, you know, they're beating the bushes. They're over, they're overturning every rock. But really what it is is that, like, like this guy was telling me, like, yeah, like, there's just one guy in, in, you know, in D.C. that was just like, man, I'm tired of busting different pedophiles with the same material over and over again. What if we just set them all up? What if we just took over this market? And they're like, well, and the guy, it was, it was like, he didn't talk to, like, the guy that came up with the idea. So here's this from, like, a... Not like someone that was in the meeting, but like second or third hand, he's like, yeah, like this guy, you know, he's talking about the whole thing. And he's like, well, at the time, he's like, Max will get will hit 50% of the market and then they'll do something else and then it won't work anymore. But when they actually ran the scam, they're like, wow, we didn't realize how difficult it would be for them to like, like they can't logic their way out of it because if they're buying the material, eventually it's like, it, you know, if, if we keep doing this the right way, they can't figure out who's real and who's the FBI. So eventually that means that the, all of them are just the FBI. So somewhere out there, there was someone bef- the year before Jared got busted or like, here's the other thing. So there, you don't just set one guy up. You got to set up like 10 guys and then you take all your stuff to the boss and everybody's just like, well, who do you want to set up? And the boss just picks somebody random. So the other guys are still, re- or the FBI still knows who they are. They're still selling them stuff. And like the, and they haven't been arrested because just because they're not the fall guy this time doesn't mean that they're not going to be the fall guy next time. So somebody, well, that was like, yeah. I'm sorry, that that was like exactly like with uh, with Epstein, right? Yeah, like the FBI and everybody knew what Epstein was doing, but they essentially let him do it. Yeah, and it's like Jesus. Yeah. Now that's a case that that's with the with the pedophilia stuff. It's like yeah, they're with the tapes. It's it's a you know it is still a dangerous trade off. But they're like well, it's it's the only way to minimize things because there's like I said, some of these tapes like they might still be circulating the same you know material from like or like I get like that's that's the other thing because they said they had people look at like game theory and all this kind of stuff and they says well if this is successful, this will also reduce the amount of material that's being made. Because if you're selling new things, everyone is just going to assume that, oh, well, that guy has to be the FBI agent because he's selling stuff we've never heard of. But I guess, like, yeah. So it also disincentivizes people from making these things because, like, if you make one video and then you try to sell it and then everyone is just like, nah, you're an FBI agent. And you're like, oh, like, but it's like if you did your research beforehand, you would know that, like, oh. You can't just do stuff like that because everyone's going to accuse you. So, like, you heard this from, like, this random guy at Georgia State. Yeah, so it was, like, it was it was super random, but when I asked him, like, how he knew all this stuff, he's just like, oh, I'm doing a master's thesis on it. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, poli-sci at Georgia State. Like, this is, he says that he, like, how he heard about it, he was like, 
you know, grad students, you know, you got to come up with something to like study. He's like, I was looking for something. Nothing was really interesting. I couldn't think of anything new. And he said he was at a party and somebody told him about, he says like, he got like a, basically like what I'm telling you. And he was just like, well, that doesn't sound like something the FBI would do. And the guy's like, well, you know, my uncle is a, is an agent. And so he's like, well, can you, can I meet him? Can I get it? And he's like, and he had the meeting with them. And he's like, so when I met him, he, I think he was still trying to chase down the original person that came up with the idea, but he's like, oh yeah, I've talked to like, he's like, I've talked to the guy that like, basically the guy I'm telling you, that's like, oh, the guy that picks who's going to be the fall guy for this operation. Like he had already talked to that guy. And he's like, he, oh yeah, the guy showed him the math and everything. And I was just like, we're like, what? And he's like, yeah, like I just stumbled into this whole thing. And he's like, the only thing that's bad about it is that he's like, well, I can do my research on it, but like the FBI doesn't want all of this stuff to be public. So it's like, well, I can do my thesis, but my, he's like, I, he's like, I won't be able to do my PhD thesis on it because that will get published. So he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to shift over to something else in the FBI because I made all these like contacts and stuff. But yeah, but it's like, the only thing is like, I don't know the guy is, it's like, I don't even know if I would, even if I knew his name, I don't even know if I want to look it up. Cause he's like, yeah, you know, I can, it'll be on file somewhere, but like, he doesn't, he's like, yeah, they basically, the agreement was everything has to be said a certain way, like in his, uh, in the master's thesis and it also can't be something that's like directly publicly available so even now like it's if you went to georgia state and look like there's somewhere to like to find it but it's like when you find the actual thing someone's gonna like come up to you and be like hey uh you have to go into the building to read this and we're not gonna let they're not gonna let you like walk out of the building with a copy of it you can't like photocopy it or you're gonna have to have like special permission and all that kind of stuff. And then when you do all that kind of stuff, you're like instantly gonna end up like on an FBI watch list. Yeah. Right. No, no, that's yeah, wow. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, this is obvious to you because I've had you on my podcast before, but holy crap, you'd be a, an amazing podcast guest. <laughs> You want to do a podcast. I mean, I'm sure I'll get around to it. Like, eventually, like, there's a lot of, uh, like, the joke that I, you know, was always telling people, like, in college is that, you know what I should do? I should do a podcast about starting a podcast where, like, I just go on every week and I'm like, all right, here's what would be a really cool podcast idea. But we never actually do any of those ideas. Like, super meta, like, like, you know, like, I don't know. It's, it's actually really easy to do a podcast. And it's really easy to get, like, a whole lot of listeners. Well, okay, how many is a whole lot? It's easy to get, if you have compelling material, it's easy to get into the thousands. But I don't know if you could make money off of it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, for me, like, right now, like, I'm not really, like... It would be cool to be able to make money from something in media at some point, but I'm not at the point right now where, where, where like, I'm too concerned about that. Like, I mean, right now, like, my main claim to fame is, like, uh, so, like, I'm still on Tumblr, and, like, I've got, like, one of, like, the last Tumblr porn blogs, which I'm just doing it basically to harass them, and I've got, like, 8,000 followers on there, and that's, like, my biggest social media thing. The whole thing is just, like, well... The, the funny thing to me is that there was, and like, I, I wish like, I know that, you know, in a hundred years from now, like there's going to be people that have all this stuff, but it's like, the weird thing is that, you know, a hundred years from now, there's going to be a, a grad student that will be able to answer questions that we have about the internet now, but you can't look up the answer now when it's like, we should just do this research now. But anyway, it's like, there's this, 
there there's like I don't know if it's like a specific number or if it's just the way that things are designed, but I've noticed that when you have a website where people can upload content, no matter what the original thing was, there's a certain number of users where eventually you get to a point where it's possible to just put yourself like in this like sort of like echo chamber and there's so much content and it's refreshing so so often that if you jumped into a site because of XYZ, like I said, for me, like, you know, I heard about Tumblr just because of, you know, just because of the porn. And then when I got on there, uh, there was people like in the Atlanta area that are, you know, that do like nude photography and erotic photography. And I started following them. And then I started following the people that they follow and it just went out and out and out. And I, like whenever I, even today, when I hear people saying that, oh, you know, you know, those people are just like Tumblr, you know, Tumblr liberals and they're Tumblr socialists, you know, they don't know anything and these fandoms are all crazy. It takes me a while. Wait, 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 wait. Tumblr liberals, Tumblr socialists, drill down on that. Oh yeah. What the hell? Yeah. So like that's so like I said, like the, the weird thing is that there's you know Tumblr has you know before the big crash, it had gotten to a point where there was just so many different communities. And, like, the very weird thing about the Tumblr, like, demographic is that there was one side of it that was porn, but then there was also another side where, for some reason, they had, they attracted, uh, so it was a lot of, you know, like, queer youth, you know, you know, gay teenagers and all that kind of stuff, and they would just post stuff about their life, and, but the thing is, people would, because those two sides were a lot closer in the beginning, there was a lot of people that were, like, adults, they were seeing like they didn't they were like why are someone posting this weird angsty thing on my porn blog or whatever and they would answer people and basically what happened is that a lot of these you know kids that were just sort of asking like rhetorical questions or just basic questions about you know politics but because you know we've gotten you know when you and i go on the internet there is still the whole like asl thing right but like kids that asl say say, refresh my memory asl so that was the thing that uh started like on AOL instant messenger and AOL chat rooms so it was like uh so basically it was age sex location and sometimes people would just run it all together sometimes they put slashes in there but that was like the standard like asl age sex age sex okay yeah so for me i was i would write like uh what was it so 15 m atl you know or whatever, because that was like you know fifteen, and then you know you could go, and it was really cool if you were in like an international chat room because you get in there at a certain time and you one person would post it, and then you'd just get a big wall of all these people, and then you could say, oh, well this person is from France, and I want to talk to somebody from France, so I'll talk to them. But yeah, so like the weird thing is that that's kind of a feature that's kind of seen as like an old school thing. So when you're on like Tumblr or, or like Reddit or any of these sites now, no one does that. So when you're talking to people, everyone individually just kind of has this default assumption that they're talking to somebody that's like vaguely like them. So when you have an adult that's asking this really basic question, people will either talk down to them because they think they're stupid or they just assume that this person wants to know this question and or just doesn't know the answer for whatever reason. So what happened is that you start out with these two separate communities that were the there were there was no real way to like you could you were just getting everything that was on tumblr and they weren't separated because you couldn't choose to just follow one thing or the other so what happened is that a lot of these kids that were on tumblr very early on when they would ask questions about history uh politics and all this kind of stuff they were getting like very like they were, they weren't getting the answers that we normally tell kids to make them feel better about things they were getting 
you know, if someone says, well, hey, I don't understand this whole Al Gore thing, no one would say, well, the dang uh, third party voters, people were actually hitting them with like straight up essays on like, here's the county by county breakdown. Uh, here's an analysis of, you know, how we feel that Gore ran away from Clinton. Like they were getting him like, like people were giving them like serious, like adult answers. And so what happens is that. I mean, Gore ran away from Bush, not Clinton. But yeah. Yeah. So there, so people were giving them these serious answers. And so, and you know, they didn't understand everything. So they would ask questions and they would get, you know, they get replies. And so what happened is that there are all these things that were created. They were sort of like, here's, uh, here's 500 words that explains, you know, the electoral college and all this kind of stuff. And then when people found out about this was happening and then when also Tumblr, you know, Tumblr changed the basic way that the site works so that you could have, so that you could just say, well, I'm going to go and follow this hashtag and then just, you know, they, they're, they're kind of going back on it now, but they were, they got rid of the whole, just showing you everything in Tumblr. And you could just say, you signed up to the site, you just got a blank wall and you just followed whoever. So at that point, everything became separated. So once they became separated, but people still knew this was going on. A lot of folks were actually like, Hey, there's all these people uh, posting like political stuff on this website you know, you should get involved. So what happened is that you had, you know, a lot of folks go and, you know, like I said, like they're, you kind of like getting, you know, radicalized and they were getting things. And as those kids got older, you know, some of them, you know, actually went and got poli sci degrees. Uh, and they're also like, you know, colleges had, you know, went on there and had, there's official college accounts. There are museums that have accounts and it just created this big sort of like, you know, feedback loop where, you could just get on, like, if you had enough followers, if you're following the right people, you could literally just get onto the site and you could say, hey, uh, I heard a rumor that there's uh, a big post on this political thing. And somebody would say, oh, yeah, here it is. And, like, it just, the stuff just gets reblogged. And so if you're, you know, it's sort of like, it. it's kind of, it's, I mean, it is like a search thing. I mean, you could just search for things, but a lot of people would just say, well, I want someone to send this to me or it would just show up on their, like on their feed. And the, like I said, like there was, so the, the stereotype that people kind of developed was that it was because these are young people who are just getting into politics and they're just learning about things. And also there is a heavy, you know, like LGBT, you know, contingent. There is a, the big joke is that, you know, in AOL days, you would just have someone say that like, oh, I'm a 30, you know, I'm 35F Tokyo. So this is a middle-aged woman in Tokyo. And that's, you know, that was your whole bio. But on Tumblr, your bio is, you know, I'm a 16-year-old uh, tractor who is pro-communism and then some random URL that doesn't go anywhere. Because you would have posts where people asked about, like, well, I'm having feelings about someone that's the same gender and, like, what's all about that? And like I said... In the early days, people weren't necessarily aware that they were talking to someone that was like a 12-year-old boy. So they were just like, hey, man, you know, if you're gay, you know, you're just gay. And all that. And so that's sort of like, you know, or, you know, people talking to these kids as if they were adults. It kind of. And then, like I said, there's the second wave where you had different people coming in. And what it kind of blossomed into is like there's posts where someone got on there that was there's like doctors that got in there and they just went through all these posts and they're like here's a bunch of kids asking questions about you know the biological aspect of sex and they just created new material and they posted things and so you look through things and you'll be like well, where did this person get all this information about like what transition is and you'll go through and you'll find out they're like oh this is a doctor 
Or like, here's someone with a PhD in anthropology, and they're just dumping all this information out there. But it also created this sort of like a self-parodying thing where people went from asking questions about like, well, if I'm a boy and I don't feel like a boy, I'm a boy, well, what does that mean? And they went from there to like college level reading about gender to just people just saying like, I identify, like there is one thing where, what was it? Um, there was a thing where people were identifying as Pluto as a gender. And that, what does that mean? Pluto as a gender? Well, it's sort of like, uh, well, so that, that that's kind of the problem is that, so once people started saying things like this, then it became a question of, are they seriously saying this or is this a joke? And if it is a joke, like what, like, what does that mean? Like, that's not even a sentence, but basically the idea is that people were, uh, like I said, if you really dig back to like early Tumblr and you're looking at all this stuff, there are people that said, Hey, well, like I'm a boy, but I don't feel like a boy. And then someone hit them with all this like deep, you know, theory, you know, feminist theory stuff. And so people will ask the, you know, rhetorically, they're like, well, if, if biological sex is real and gender isn't, if it's just an idea that people came up with, then why do our ideas have to match? Like, why do our ideas have to have any sort of connection to male or female? If those things, if our ideas about, if our ideas about biological sex don't, are, are cavemen that came up with them, why can't someone just say that they're a tractor? Now, someone might look at that and say, well, that's a funny joke, and they reblog that, whatever. But then someone else takes the joke further, and they say, well... But somebody might get really meta about that and start thinking right. and about that, it. Yeah, and that, that was exactly. the, kind of the, the, the whole problem, because there was... Uh, so, like, what I dug into the Pluto thing specifically, I could only find one ex- actual example of someone claiming that they were Pluto. But there were a whole lot of people... There were a whole lot of people that would say that, like, I'm this, but I also knew this person. But, like, when you look into it, they're like, well, they're not actually connected to the person that's saying this. So, like, that, those people are joking. But then the thing was, people that weren't on, people that didn't have Tumblr accounts were just seeing screenshots. So they were looking at this, and they were like, this is 40 different people all claiming to be Pluto. What the, what? And it's like, well, also, and there, hang on. Also, there's another thought that I just had. What if, yeah. and just hear me out. Like, I know that's a cliche, but just hear me out. What if, so one of the big problems now is you have all these kids, all these young people, and they're, they're kind of protesting around or whatever. They're, you know, they're whatever. But they're saying things that the, that the older folks don't understand. Like, they literally don't understand. And what if what's really happening is these people, these younger people, they were going on the internet, and instead of goofing off or whatever, they were getting, you know, theory, be it whatever. And I don't know. Like, I wasn't aware that there was this much theory happening in chat rooms. I'm not that much older than you. Right, but it's like... Maybe that's the generational well, like, divide. So for me, like as far as like the whole generation thing, I feel like this is going to be like, you know, Gen Y and Gen Z. Like, I feel like these are going to be the last generations to even think about that because the, like the ascendance of the internet has, I mean, like, you know, people can talk to the cows come home about like, well, how valid is the whole concept of generation anyway? But the thing is like, when you look at like the ancient world, the medieval world, when, 
when things are roughly the same for hundreds of years at a time, like the original idea of a generation, like it, it, you know, it makes sense because you're saying that like, if everyone only lives to the age of 30 or to the age of 45, you're like, or like when you see like the word generation in the Bible, it's like the literal meaning is like a turning of the world. So the idea is that like every, roughly every 30 years, the whole world dies off and you have a new world. So, and so when you're changing when you when people start having different ideas, that obviously has to have some sort of connection to the people that are creating the ideas. So eventually, you know, that means that when you have a world where the world is learning, is turning slowly, that means at some point people that believe in a certain idea are going to die off, and then everyone believes this other thing. But the thing about like the internet is, you know, everything is still based on everything is still based on your experience. But we're also kind of doing this weird wraparound effect where we went from, uh, you know, a society that only changed once every hundred years to a society that changed every thirty years, and we're at a period now where it feels like it's going to change every single year. But we're also starting to see things solidify, and things are solidifying behind us. So we're eventually going to get to the point where, when you and I are in like the old folks' home, the kids that are being born that year, our experiences on like what they're now going to call the early internet, like. They will be completely, there will be no way for, for people to recover this information. And the thing is, so like, just between you and me. What do you mean there's going to be no way for people to recover Well, like, think about, like, just like what we're talking about, like, right now, about, like, tum- like uh, about, like, say, like, AOL. So you and I have memories of, like, AOL and okay. dial-up and maybe going into chat rooms. And me specifically, because I've actually been thinking about this since I was in like middle school, I actually went through the trouble of taking screenshots of things and I printed certain things out. And every couple of years I'll go by, I'll go through my stuff and I'll say, okay, do I still have this? You know, do I still have that? Like I went through things and uh, there was actually, um, so the very first email that was sent, uh, if you were on the internet in like 96, 98, there was someone that had a scan of the very you know, the very first email that was sent, the person on the receiving end was just so tickled. They they printed it out, and when scanning technology was invented, they scanned it in, and then later on, someone else actually found that scan and they uploaded it to the internet. Uh, so, one of the things that I did is I printed that that page out with the address, and I made a note to myself to keep checking that page. And for the first like five years, that thing was there, uh, and then at one point, I noticed that you couldn't find that page anymore. And if you searched uh, first email on the internet, it didn't come up. I think if you searched it now, it's probably there. It's probably back there again. But there's a whole bunch of stuff like, say, Yahoo Instant Messenger, AOL Instant Messenger, and like how, like the whole culture of those chat rooms, like that's something that only existed for like five years. So like I said, like the whole ASL thing, no one, people, yeah, so just two years younger than me, like my roommate's two years younger than me, and like that too, like basically every year after like 1980, there's, there are these gaps where in be- there are certain years where if you were, where like on the one side of this one calendar year, you've got someone that is just old enough to be the young kid in the chat room. And like I said, like, so I was born in 85. So at 85, I was always the youngest kid in the chat room. At 86, maybe there are some kids that jumped into the chat room, but the thing is things when people started trying to advertise on in the chat rooms and that's, you know, the whole spam bots, 
that's when everybody left those chat rooms and then went to social media. So people that were born in 87, yeah, they are, they heard about AOL and they heard about the chat rooms, but when they went in there, they didn't get the experience that I got because they were like they were just too late. Like they missed that entirely. Just like I missed bulletin boards entirely. Were bulletin boards in existence when I was born? Yeah. Were they in existence when I first got on the internet? Yeah. By the time I met people who told me, oh yeah, you're having a cool experience now, but if you got onto the boards, it'd be much cooler. By the time I had that conversation, the people that were on the boards were also not on the boards anymore. And Well, that's funny you mentioned that because I was, so, I mean, there's a scenario that keeps popping up. And I think what I'm going to do is I think I'm going to do a little light editing and actually put this on the internet because lo and behold, (laughs) this actually became this little goof off session actually became fascinating. Uh, Damn it. (laughs) I'm going to do a little light editing tomorrow and throw this up. But uh, if you want, I'll let you listen to it first. You know, but uh, no, that there's a there's a scenario, a specific scenario that just hit me upside the head. Literally, it's exactly what you're talking about. So, I moved back into my parents' house, um, in twenty twenty thirteen. Yeah, yeah, almost twenty fourteen. Okay, all right. Um, there was a website that I remember going to in this room. It was called Hockey's Future or something like that. It was literally a bulletin board, like an old, an old style bulletin board. Okay. And I posted stuff up and we had, we had chats and talks and that, you know, good old day, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Right. So fast forward to now. Okay. Fast forward to now ish. And I've got this podcast. I've got a few episodes deep, and I'm like, okay, I want to, I want to boost this thing. Let's find a, let's find a bulletin board to put it on because I mean, you know, Reddit, Reddit these days is a bitch to navigate, essentially. Oh yeah. Right. Okay. Oh yeah, I'm there. You there? Okay. So essentially, these days it's a bitch to navigate. So I was like. Let me just find an old timey bulletin board to go on and talk about my podcast. There are no bulletin boards. There's literally no chat rooms like that anymore. It's all gone to Reddit. Yep. You know? Right. And it's like. But here's something that I want to. Go ahead. I, know, I was just going to say that, like, to me, like, I guess, like, the thing that kind of kicked off my thinking about it, like, when I was a kid is that. You know, like I didn't, uh, you know, I grew up in like this, you know, suburbs and all this kind of stuff. And so there was never anything around me. And I just kind of like fantasized about the idea of like the internet, like as a place. And like I said, like I was always the youngest kid in the chat room and I would go in there and like I would talk to people and I would just kind of like imagine that I was like, oh, like I'm in a bar and I'm hanging out with the adults and this is cool. But the thing is, is like, you know, the, the problem with like bars and, you know, places like that is, you know, places go out of business. But on the internet, people said that, like, oh, you know, the internet is, like, you know, one of these places, but it's always open and, you know, to be there forever and all that kind of stuff. But as I've gotten older, the weird thing is that the places that were there, and it's, I mean, it's pretty much the same experience that I've had, like, with, you know, the, with the real Atlanta, where it is that the places, places that I remember seeing when I was a kid, that 
you know, the building's not there, or it's been renamed, uh, torn down, they changed the sign, they changed the name, you know, like all this are, you know, weird stuff, or it's behind a fence or whatever. And the same exact thing has actually happened, you know, with, with the internet. It's, it's a physical place in a lot of, you know, in a lot of different ways. And even though they told people say like, oh, well, you know, you put something on the internet, it's there forever. And there's this, like, it is, but it isn't. It is as long as the uh, the company's around, I guess. Well, I, and then again, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Here's a thought I was having today, right? Here's a thought I was having today. So I listen to a lot of podcasts, right? That's That's why I got into podcasting, because I listen to a lot of podcasts, okay? And the thing I was thinking was, I don't know, I was sitting, I was walking around, you know, exercising, listening to a podcast, and I was like, what's going to happen to all these podcasts when the people die? I mean, some of these things, there's real knowledge. Here. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's real knowledge on this podcast I'm listening to right now. What's going to happen to this podcast when these people go? Or, like... You know, podcasting has been around since like oh five, maybe oh nine. I'm not sure, but I mean, what happens if like Podbean was to disappear? Yeah, that's my host, by the way. Shout out. Well, yeah, but it's like that's. So I guess like the good news is that there are people that are like working on like answering those questions. But then like the bad news is there, like I so, said, like there are there's a whole category of experiences, and like I so, said, like the. It's it sounds kind of weird to say it now, and also because like the sort of the goalpost have moved, but I think that like so like a hundred years like even though like so right now when you say the phrase early internet, most people are, are especially people that like really know stuff about the history of the internet, they're gonna be like oh well early internet is basically like everything from like ARPANET until like the like invention of the of the uh, you know invention of like email or, or you know stuff or or that until like say like ninety six. Because when I when I talk to people like I've uh, so I did like an oral history project that you know in GSU it's so, like I've talked to people that remember when, uh, you know but you know when you had browsers before browsers had the bookmark function when bookmarks were like physically so I talked to someone that was he basically was at the uh, he was at a PhD program in Georgia State like the year I was born and he had a physical list in his office of all the websites that he knew about and it was like well I knew, I knew nine. And then he said that he talked to someone in class one day that had heard of 19 websites. And he says, like, everyone in the room was just, like, looking at him. And he's like, how did you even find 19 websites? Like, what are you – like, they were they were, they were were shocked. And everyone wanted to, like, copy down – like, that was, like – he was like, that was a big thing. Like, we physically got up out of our desk and we were looking at his list. And we were like, wow, this is, like – this is impressive. Like, he's found 19 websites and none of them are websites that we have on our list. And so they actually sat down and copied his list. And – you know, I, I was talking to someone else about how uh, he was at a university here and he was like, oh, yeah, emailing, uh, you know, from UGLA, from UGA to UCLA, it was like sending an actual letter because there weren't you didn't have a direct connection between all these different places. So if you emailed somebody from UGA, on, he says, like on a Friday night, he's like, they probably wouldn't get it until like Tuesday morning. And the, the timestamps actually reflected this. It would say it would sit here, and then the other person, like, he would get a call from some. He, he would tell someone, like, hey, uh, here's this file, and here's something about it, and just call me uh, when you get it. And sure enough, he's like, yeah, Tuesday or Wednesday, the person will give me a call, and they're like, oh, yeah, I finally got your email. 
And it's like, man, you could literally have sent that person an actual letter and it would have beaten them. And there is that whole experience. Well, like, oh, you could oh, almost definitely. fly there. I mean, well, I mean, like, well, the maybe fact not. Thing is like, yeah, like the, from, it's like from, especially when we're specifically yeah. talking about coast to coast, like from anywhere on the East Coast to, to the West Coast, he's like, oh, yeah, you could, you could definitely have gotten, uh, gotten that plane and beaten that email there. And he's like, for some of these things, he's like, oh, yeah, from like, you, from, from Georgia to places in the middle of the country, he's like, depending on, what the place was is like you could you could have gotten in a car and he's like he was he was actually like giving me a map and he's like oh yeah like in this place in Oklahoma there was no connection between this place and this place so he's like yeah from Georgia to Oklahoma he's like oh yeah you could have got you could get in the car and beat that email there every single time but it's like this university in Texas had a whole lot of relays so that will get there faster and he's and the reason he remembers all this stuff thirty years later is because like that was that was like real information that you needed to know about how email works. Like you needed to know if you like how many colleges were in, how many colleges with an internet connection were in between you and the destination because that affected how long things took. And so like, that was like a big part of their experience. But like, for me, I had never heard, I was just like, what? Like I knew, like, I know how it works, but I've never experienced an environment where that matters because it's like there's there's so many relays now but when there was only you know one or two in between every university and they're hundreds of miles apart like that really matters and so the thing is like just like that experience is something that like as of right now i don't know i mean you definitely cannot go to a bar to what is it barnes and noble and find a book that like the information that we're talking about right now this is not in a book that's in barnes and noble now maybe you can go to uh I think like University of Oklahoma has a digital anthropology program. So that's people that are like studying this kind of stuff right now. So there's probably some sort of grad student that has this or a PhD candidate that has put that in there. But like, I can think of like a dozen things about the just everyday experience of being on the internet in 1998 that like, I just straight up know for a fact, you can't find this in a book somewhere. And the thing is, if somebody in this age group, uh, so give I mean, me an example. Oh, or even just like, all right, so like, here's like, like for me, like, uh, the, is like the, the big thing, uh, the idea that, you know, Bill Clinton said, you know, the whole information superhighway speech, there was a time on the internet where you could just say, Hey, wouldn't it be like, or like the thing I said earlier, uh, I woke up one day and I was like, I came home from school, like on a Thursday night on a Thursday. And I was like, Hey, it'd be really cool to talk to somebody in Japan. And when I asked about the internet in school, they were like, well, that's what the internet's for. So my mom went to sleep. I got on AOL. I went to the international chat room. Uh, and there's a certain, there are like, or so there's actually, so there's like two examples. So one, uh, chat rooms had like a turnover like period. So because of the, it's sort of like, uh, because of the, it's sort of like, you know, network ratings and all that kind of stuff. Right. So after Johnny Carson got off the air, uh, there's, I heard this thing where, uh, Jerry Seinfeld is saying that he actually saw a, uh, he actually saw a study that showed that power usage and water usage in America spiked after Johnny Carson got off the air because that was the time when he, people would stay up to watch Johnny Carson. And then after he got off the air, they went to the bathroom, they went to the sleep, they went to sleep. So that was something where people knew that's like, Oh wow, this is a measurable effect that this show is having like on like the nation that he has such a big audience that like power usage spikes. 
or, or goes down and water usage goes up like slightly after he gets off the air. So the internet also had a sort of similar thing based on time zones. So if you were in a certain chat room and you were there all day, or if you were just there like all day long on a weekend, you would eventually start to see it. And you would realize that like, okay, there's this turnover thing where a lot of people are logging off in a certain time zone, but people are logging in and another, and another time zone. So that wasn't like written down anywhere, but if you were in a chat room, you just sort of realized that like, okay, um, nine p at, at nine p.m. There's going to be a big changeover. So what the changeover means is that you're going to have a whole bunch of people jumping into the chat room and saying hi, ASL, and all that kind of stuff. So eventually, people got tired of that just busting up conversations. And if you feel like you didn't like the people that were in the next time zone from your, people would just leave, and then sort of the effect kind of like snowballed. So you'd have people coming in and sort of breaking up conversations, but then you would also have people say, well, okay, I want to start logging off at 8.50. So what that means is that if you are someone that's like, well, I like the 8.30 crowd and I like the 9 p.m. crowd, you know that there is just going to be this sort of like gap in conversations. So what people would do is they would say, well, okay, we're just going to go into like a private chat for like from like 8.55 to like 9.03. And then you'd come out of so if so, but if you were you know, just getting on, you could say, well, okay, if I get on right here, what I'm going to, if I get on like exactly at like 902, what I'm going to see is a big wall of people answering the question ASL. So that's what I did. So like I said, like I, I got on from school and I said, I want to have, I want to talk to someone in Japan. I knew that this chat room had a change over at like nine o'clock. So I waited until I got on just a little bit before then. And then I got into the chat room so that I wouldn't have you know, anything before that. And then the big wall came up. I read through it. There was a woman, someone said they were, uh, I recognized a Japanese city name. I sent that woman a private message. And then we talked for like 30 minutes about stuff. And like, and, and that was it. So like I said, that was something that was like, again, like for that specific time period, that was something that was, I wouldn't say it was like super important, but not having that information and not acting on it made being in a chat room just super irritating at certain specific points in the day. Now, if you were there at like 2 p.m. or if you were there during the day, during business hours, it didn't matter as much because if you're there during business hours, the changeover is only people leaving for work or coming back from work, which is which is still different because then you're only having people that are they're just like you're only having like diehard people. But if you're on the but if you were in a chat room at a time when people are, are like getting on because they're like, oh, well, this is like the late night blogging club. It was super irritating to have them bust up your conversation with 40 different people. Like, so like, so there's an example of something that like every day when I was in a chat room, I thought about the fact that there was that changeover. But if you were to get a book about the early internet or about like, number one, people are not even talking about like the experience of chat rooms and they're definitely not getting like that deep into it. But if you have like, if you could find someone that was on the internet like in the '80s and '90s, and they have a perfect memory, and you at you ask them these questions, they would be like, "Oh yeah, that was like." Now maybe they didn't care, but there's there's all these little. Well, also, I mean, I mean, okay, look at okay, look at how the internet has become yeah. everything. Where in the '80s and '90s, and even in the early O's. It wasn't everything. You know, my own sense of it is that the internet started to become everything when you could stream video. 
once you can reliably stream video to the point where you no longer have to pay a cable bill, right, for cable television, okay, that's when the internet became everything. Oh, yeah. And the you know the funny thing is like there's even like there's even like a name for those people that it's or they're you know they're called cord cutters. So I mean no one uses that phrase anymore, but like, what do you mean nobody uses that phrase anymore? So when I first heard about it, like it seemed like people were using it a lot, and then I just stopped hearing it. But okay, that's cool that they're still saying that. But it's kind of like, well, is okay. Let's drill into that. Are you saying nobody says that anymore because everybody assumes that everybody's a cord cutter? Well, I think so. Definitely in my <laughs> personal friend circle, all of us, because of age group and all that kind of stuff, we're all definitely, or even actually no, people that are much older than me are also like everyone's pretty much having the same thing. Like cable, cable is expensive and it only, it had only ever really made sense for people that were into sports. Everybody that was not into sports was getting overcharged and they knew it. So like, yeah, like pretty much like, the cord cutting thing is pretty much everyone, but yeah, like when I first, for me, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, or, or like watches. So I remember being in a Walmart and trying to replace the band in my watch and thinking, man, the band cost me just as much as the watch. I might as well just buy a new watch every time. And as long as I could get that same watch that I liked, it didn't seem like a big deal. But then one day I was there in Walmart and I was thinking about, uh, you know, buying a new watch because the band busted and they didn't have the the specific like brand model or whatever that I liked, and it just realized and I realized, hold on, the point of this watch is to tell me the time. I have a cell phone. Yeah, and like I had I had a cell phone for like a year before this, but like the the band you know lasted that whole like I had had that watch for like two years or whatever, and you know you don't think about things like that because you know if you have a watch where the band only breaks once every two years and it only costs like nine bucks or whatever, it's like, you know, you don't even think about it. But I was at the store that day and I was like, huh, I don't actually need a watch anymore as long as I have this phone. And I was like, well, at that time, I was still thinking that, well, maybe, you know, uh, there was still sort of the idea that, okay, maybe, you know, when I get a house, I'll still have a landline or whatever because I, most people I knew had landlines. And I was like, well, when I get a landline... Uh, I don't want to have two phone bills. That seems stupid. So when I get a landline, I'll just, uh, I'll get a watch again. And then of course that never happened. And so like, you know, 10 years later or whatever, but there's, so anybody can, you know, anybody can just buy a silk. Like, I mean, there, there's a certain type of person that buys a phone and immediately has that thought, but the average person has had a cell phone for probably like, you know, a year or a couple of months before they're like, huh, why am I putting on a watch every morning? When I have this other thing. I actually remember. It's funny you bring that up. I actually remember a, a story. I had a I had a roommate. Ages ago. And back when. Flip, back when dumb phones were a thing. Right. Yeah. You know. Like a dumb phone. Um, he actually. He looked at his phone. And he said. I never thought pocket watches would come back into fashion. <laughs> But here we are. I swear, ever since that moment, I might maybe I've worn a watch five times, and that was a long time ago. Oh yeah, and it's like, you know, and I guess like that, like to me, that's the thing where uh, I guess actually it was the the specific experience that I had to make me start thinking about all of this was that uh, when I was in high school, 
Um, I heard about this guy, uh, Samuel Peps. And, you know, I was always sort of interested in history, but it, it always seemed kind of weird to me in class that, you know, I felt like the way the his the way that history is taught really kind of tries to convince students that like his you know history is what's inside this book and things that are not inside this book that happened in the past are somehow just like not worthy or whatever but you know until i actually started taking college classes i didn't no one ever talked to me about you know the process for how like how does the past become history and it seems like it's like a like a philosophical like you know smoking weed at 2 a.m thing but the Right. Except it's not. It's, it's, it's actually really not. a very important thing. He's... And the, the my first experience with understanding like what that process is or the fact that there is a process is that I uh, I was, I think, yeah, I was probably, so, well, I wasn't in the library when I was thinking about this, but I had just read it earlier in that day. And there's something that I read about the the Great Fire of London, which happened in like, uh, it's like 1666. So as it turns out, there was this, uh, Everything that we know about the uh, the as far as you know direct sources, all of our sources for the for the Great Fire of London are so it there's it's actually just two journals like e, like there's government sort like you know government sources didn't survive a whole bunch of other things didn't survive for the Great Fire of London and actually like two years actually like that whole period of English history the major sources are there's this guy Samuel Peps who was a mid level government official and also a naval officer. And then there was another guy who was also a noble. And what separated them from literally everybody else like in London is that other people had journals that survived, that didn't get burnt. But the difference is everyone else had prayer journals. So they would just, so they would pray and then they would write down the prayer or they would pray and they would say, today I prayed about this, this, and this. And then two weeks later, they would come back and say, well, here's my last prayer, and here's what God has done for me since then. So the whole city of London, all the people that were literate, that kept journals, and that survived the Great Fire, they all fall into that category except for two dudes. And I looked at this, and I went to this, I was thinking about that, and I was like, I have thoughts about this, but this can't be right. So I went to school the next day, and I talked to my history teacher about it, and I was like, is this true? And there's like, oh yeah, Samuel Peps, he's very... Uh, you know, he, he's very famous. And if you want more information on him, uh, you know, you can go uh, to class, you can go to the library during class and I'll uh, th read this book in the library. If you don't read a whole, if you don't want to read the whole book, uh, read this chapter in this book. And I, and, you know, so I did that, but he was also talking to me about it. And he was like, well, here's the, and I was like, well, doesn't that mean that we only know things about this period of British history? If number one, Samuel Peps thought it was important to write it down. And then number two, we only have his opinion on the thing. And if him and this other guy both have the same opinion, then like we don't have any other opinions and there's no way to figure it out unless we just like, like if they both agree that this building was two blocks away from this building, if we don't have a map, we just have to say that they're BSing us or we just have to believe it and that's it. And he's just like, yeah. And I was like, well, is this like, is this like, like, what does that mean? And he was just like, I see what you're going and let me just cut to the chase. Yes, that is how history works. But for every other period in history, there's like 20 Samuel Pepses or 200 Samuel Pepses. But this guy is like, the reason you know about this guy, that the article that you heard is this is like the only, this is like the only major point in like Europe's history where it's literally just this guy and this other guy. And by the way, they both know each other. 
And I was just like, that's even worse. If they both know each other and they're in the same class in the same city and they're neighbors, they might as well both be the same guy. And he's like, yeah, welcome to history. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah. That's got to be Dr. Selwood. I feel like that's Dr. Selwood. Well, this is something right? that I talk to people about, like, in, like, I probably mentioned in college, but this is something I was talking to people about, like, in high school. Okay, so it was uh, high school. I'll tell you for me what it was. Um, I started, um, I started really with history with my uncle um, when I was a child. But basically, like, when I became, when I got into uh, filmmaking, when I got into documentary filmmaking, you know, and you, you talk to these old people about their lives and you realize, you know, it was early enough in this that I realized, you know, what I was living through was, you know, the place I was living was, it was a rural place. It was a very, very rural place, but it was becoming suburban, like very rapidly. Okay. I'll tell you what I mean by very rapidly. I would, I, I, I'll never forget this. I literally would leave town and come back two weeks later. And where there'd been a forest, there was like a, a, a construction site, right? And then like a couple months later after that, that construction site had people in it, like shoppers and things like that. So this was ra rapid. But you talk to these people, these old people, and they'd be like, well, I remember when that was so-and-so's property, right? Or or this was a, a pond or, or yeah. whatever. It was just really crazy. And what was even crazier was I was like, you know, if you extrapolate this out, this whole area, all of Northwest Georgia is rapidly urbanizing and nobody's really talking about that. Nobody's really saying, hey, this is happening. Anyway, that, that was my yeah. first experience. And it's that. like, so yeah, I think for, you know, before the internet, the, the thing that, like I said, like, obviously, like, when I talked to him, he was just like, yeah, like, this is like, and he's like, this is, because I think he was also like in history books, you know, for obvious, like, you know, history book for like obvious reasons or whatever. And he was just like, yeah, like, this is kind of like, you know, he's like, well, if you went to college and became like a historian, they would, you would also learn about peps, like, for this exact same reason, because they get, like, it's impossible for anyone to miss this. Like most people, like even when I when I brought it up in class, and I was talking to the teacher about it, and other people were there. Everyone kind of had this like whoa moment, and they kind of just like you know forgot about it. But for me, the thing that kept this moment in my mind is that I realized that the is like the thing that happened with Peps is that like other records, like it's it's more or less just a coincidence that the government's own records also happen to burn down just because of like where they were, and the you know, Peps and the other guy also just happened to live outside of where the fire got. So it's not just that they, you know, like they didn't, their stuff didn't survive because it was, you know, because they, you know, for anything that they did, they just happened to be outside of the blast radius and the government stuff was in the center of town. But I realized that like when I, even when I was in these chat rooms talking to people about things, I was just like, huh, we have this information about, about, you know, London in the 1660s because Peps wrote about it his stuff survived and other people's didn't survive. And I thought to myself, like, is there any chance that something like that could happen to me? And I talked to the teacher and I talked to other adults and everybody was just like, do you see all this paper around you? Like, there's no way, like we can never have peps. But I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if I want to trust anyone's belief that that couldn't happen again. So that's why I started saving things. And then uh, a couple of years after I graduated high school, I was reading an article about, uh, 
like I forget the title, but I know I have it in my in my house here somewhere. But I printed it out because it was actually um like the creep like the creepy thing about it was that after having learned about Peps like in school because he's in the textbook, I opened up this article like in Time magazine and it was just like verbatim the same thing. The guy started out by talking about Peps and the Great Fire of London, and then he mentioned uh and then he went through this whole big thing about how hey we have paper now that has acid in it, which means that the paper is going to degrade. And the ink that's on that paper also has acid in it, which is going to like enhance the degrading process. And then the guy says, okay, now we're going to, I want to talk to you about archiving. And then at the end he says, you know, the great fire of London is a tragedy because it destroyed, you know, so many records that it survived for so long. But what we're, but the only good thing about it is that the fire lasted for a specific period of time and then it stopped. And then people were able to build again, and we have records again. And he says the difference between the Great Fire of London and now is that the way that we preserve digital media and the way that everything is structured, it's like there is going to be a point where the Great Fire starts, and it's effectively never going to stop. And I looked at that, and I was like, oh my god, this guy is right. Because like, like I said, like there are things that I saw on the internet then, and because there are other people that are on, that are involved in these things now, some of those things are back. But there was actually a space from like say like 2005 to 2010 where I looked at things that I had printed out and I went to the internet and I said, okay, I'm just going to put in the same search terms I did from before. And so, you know, search engines got better in between me being in high school to like 2010. And I went to look for things and I was just like, holy crap, it's already gone. And like I said, some of the stuff is. Most of that stuff, because I, like, like I was looking for like big things, like uh, somebody had, uh, so I had uh, the first email printed out, uh, I had the first web page printed out, uh, and all that kind of stuff, but there was actually a period where that's where those things were completely gone, and even some of the things that I know are back up, it's, I, I look at like, like, I look at my thing, and like, or for example, uh, the very first web page for like the, the very first page which is the Tim Berner, uh, Tim Berner Lee, his, uh, his CERN like bio page or whatever. So if you went looking for this in like 2001, if you did a search for it, you got that actual site, which was still active. He wasn't using it and it still looked, you know, funky and all that kind of stuff, but it was still there. If you go looking for it now, like he's updated his actual bio, like that was his actual bio page. And it was also like a historical website or whatever. But if you go looking now, like he's he still has a CERN page and it's updated and you have to scroll through his page and they'll be like, oh, yeah. Also, the code for this site is archived here. Click here to view it, but it won't run on your browser. So it doesn't look the same way as it looks now because they had to do things to it to make sure that people can always like look at it. But it's like you said, like it's still and I'm sure you can find someone that also printed it out and scanned it. But it's like I realized that like. That stuff is back up on the internet now because it's too big for 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 somebody to just not put it back up. But if you want to know what MySpace looked like in 2012, if you don't have a screenshot and you don't know someone that did it, like that that's just gone. Well, an example of that would be like, I mean, Tim Berners Lee is kind of the godfather yeah. of the internet, right? But like I actually know a guy who had he was in bands, um, you know he was in a lot of bands and a lot of those bands had a MySpace page, and I think like one of the band I think like one or two of the bands he was in 
actually were big enough to release like recordings that you know were copyrighted yeah. and stuff. Anyway, some kind of how the two different guys that had like I don't know control over the music or something like he was in these two different bands where he got where <clears throat> I'm sorry like the <clears throat> the guy that was in charge of the music got a letter from MySpace saying hey um we lost your music because we were upgrading our servers and we lost your music sorry and that's you know I mean think about I guess like the folk you know like the folk music or the blues music from like the the 20s or the the O's in the 20th century that kind of thing like that's kind of lost and one of the things I'm doing with my podcast actually is I'm I'm recording them into a drive I'm going to keep the drive so that way they're they're there later but uh Oh, I, I remember what I was going to bring up with you. I was actually thinking about this tonight. I was watching YouTube, and I was noticing how corporate YouTube's gotten oh, yeah. all of a sudden. Have you oh, noticed yeah. that? Like YouTube. So you two have noticed that YouTube used to be a hell of a lot better than it is. Oh, now. yeah. I mean, every it's like, yeah, it's like for me, like the, the crazy thing is that for me, YouTube is one of the was one of the very few things where because I've never really like I've always been like super late to like pretty much like every trend and it's it's only with other people forgetting about things over time that I that it, it that even kind of looks like I was ever like doing anything when it was cool but like YouTube was one of the very few things where like I can actually say that like because they I was on there for a whole year and then at the end of that year uh so 2005 i think is the year where uh time magazine had the foil cover for the man of the year and the person of the year was quote unquote you meaning like so they said it was for people that uploaded things to uh web 2.0 sites but when you read the article they were specifically talking about people that uploaded things to youtube and so just from so from being on youtube from like 2005 to now like they're like every like everything about it or like even the idea of like so in 2005 you just had this website where it was just like people uploading things and there are popular people and there was stuff but the idea that there was anybody in an office somewhere making decisions about what was on youtube that was like you know no one thought about it that much and then over but now there's like a whole thing where people are like well youtube likes this or like, or like, I guess a better example of it is that. So when I was when when I heard people on YouTube saying, you know, YouTube this, YouTube that, they almost always they always meant when they say YouTube likes or dislikes something, it was just sort of like a generic way of saying the audience likes this type of thing, the audience doesn't like this type of thing. So you would hear somebody say, well, people have been asking me, how do I make a viral YouTube video? Well, here's the thing, man. YouTube likes short videos. If I don't know who you are, your videos need to be short and you need to have like a cool title. That's what YouTube likes, cool titles. And it's like, okay. So if you look at those same people now, or it's like the very specific guy that I'm thinking about, uh, Philip DeFranco, when people asked him questions about YouTube, that's, he gave that YouTube meant the audience. The audience likes this. The audience dislikes this. But when you go to his channel now and you hear him saying YouTube likes this, YouTube doesn't like that, his audience now understands that when Philip DeFranco or, or anybody says YouTube, they're now talking about YouTube corporate. And, and like, and or just the fact that like 
and it's not like people still don't know who they are, but just that one thing I feel has changed a lot about how people, you know, how people are interacting with the site because now they understand that like even if you don't know everything about it, it's not just the algorithm. There's humans that are making these decisions, and they want this type of content versus this type of content, and it's just like, wait, but I thought this was about engaging with the audience. Why are we talking about YouTube as if it's a TV network? Well, that's because I think for a lot of people, I mean, for a lot of companies, it is a TV network. And also, I mean, looking back on it, I mean, looking back on it, the 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 halcyon days of people being able to drop a movie on YouTube, like a whole movie oh, on YouTube, man. a whole concert on YouTube. Do you yeah. remember that? Oh, that was so right? cool. And it's like actually, yeah. It's like, see, to me, like this is like like this is kind of the things that I that I'm talking about. And I guess like the I don't know, maybe that would be like a cult podcast idea. But like the the thing that has like pushed me to like stay engaged with like the you know the ongoing like history of the internet or whatever is that. Like so, like the whole concept of like a generation gap is just it's like, like I said. So for me, like I, I explain to people that you know, my, well, don't look now, yeah. but I'm sorry to interrupt, but don't look now. But I'm going to do a little light editing tomorrow, and release this into my feed. So this yeah. is the podcast. <laughs> yeah, but it's like for me, like the the weird thing is that you can have like the, there's all these little things where like I said, like just the change and like. Like, the idea that, so, like I said, when I got on YouTube in, like, 2005 or 2006, whenever that was, the idea of YouTube as a network was, like, people were already thinking about that, but it it was sort of like a, it was a hypothetical idea that people talked about to illustrate a specific uh, concept of what might happen in the future. None of those people that were talking about that actually thought that YouTube specifically would be in that position. They were just trying to say that, well, somebody, we might have, you know, what we're seeing right now is probably going to cause this, and that's probably going to cause that. And then the end effect of that second thing, whatever website has reached this amount of viewers, is basically going to be like a TV network. And then they would say, well, okay, that's going to cause this other effect, and you would just keep going. But like you said, like now, like if you're, so like I, I kind of think about, I used to do that, well, I mean, I'm, still technically do it because we're going to, you know, whenever the pandemic ends or whatever it is. So I run a D and D game for middle schoolers and yeah. So these kids okay. are like, I didn't intentionally go into it with this, but I was asked to run a D and D game in a, uh, like in a comic shop and, you know, some adults showed up and they went with one person and then like a whole bunch of kids showed up and other people didn't want to run games for kids. And they're like, well, you want to do it? And I was like, sure. Cause I didn't think the kids would keep showing up. And then all of a sudden I was just like, Oh, I guess we have a middle schooler game now. But these were kids that were born, you know, like they were like, so like to me, like the weird thing is that I, you know, I remember when I was older than all the big websites and that didn't seem like a thing that even needed to be thought about. But now I'm, inter- you know, like, so like, not like right now, but like say in January, I was interacting with these kids and it just hit me one day that like, oh my God, some of these kids, like YouTube is older than them. And when they get like, they don't, and that's. And so when they look at YouTube, for them, like you're right, like they really do think of YouTube as basically like a TV network that exists on the internet. And they don't think of that as being like a funny way of saying that or like a concept for them. Yeah. Well, here's a here's a thought. Here's a thought that I have, right? 
as, as a generational marker, right? I can remember the exact moment. <clears throat> I can remember the exact moment where I decided I'm going to cut the cord. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> I remember the exact moment. And I wonder if you remember the exact moment. Right. When you realized I'm going to cut the cord. Oh, yeah. You see what I'm saying? And it's like, yeah, like, like that's kind of like. But those thing. kids aren't going to have that moment. Yeah, because it's like the. It's weird because we, because right. it's not just the, it's not just that quote, you know, things have changed. It's basically like you and I made that decision for them to a certain extent. In a, a you know, there's, I guess there's other like level. Yeah. And they're going to make a decision right. for somebody and else. Like, but that to me, like, that's the something that, you know, like I so said, like when you're a kid and you're thinking, you know, especially being a kid, you know, in the like early internet days, there are so many adults that thought that the internet was going to be a fad or that, well, you know, it's only going to change so much because like I, I verbatim remember someone like, and this is like, a, it's, it sounds like a joke now, but I remember an adult in high school telling me that nobody wants to buy books on the internet. Like I verbatim heard that exact phrase. And, and, and it's not, and it's not just silly mm-hmm. because like, Oh, you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, is, you know, is a multi-billionaire and he's the, he's on track to become a trillionaire. Like as of this year, it's, nuts that i heard that it, that phrase from someone verbatim because we were actually talking about amazon we were talking about amazon in a year where you could only buy books on amazon and it was already a national website and in response to hearing a bunch of high school kids talking about you know how, you know how do we buy books from this website because you know, we didn't have credit cards and we weren't necessarily we weren't really clear on that an adult came up to us and verbatim said, nobody wants to buy books on the internet. And so like, like I said, like the people, like I said, like my, you know, these middle school kids, you know, that, that I run the game with, like to them, that, that sounds so divorced from reality that like, if I were to tell them that story, they, they don't have the ability to see that as something that could have, that, that could have happened and not only could have happened, but could have happened just like two years before they were born in their mind. They're like, Oh no. Like when they get to high school, Jeff Bezos is going to be, he'll have been like the richest guy in the world for like five or 10 years or whatever. So in their minds, they're like, Oh, clearly this is a good idea. And clearly everyone must've seen that this is a good idea because if not, who was, who were the customers? If everyone thinks this is a, like, if everyone thinks you have a bad idea, why are they buying your stuff? But that's the thing. Like we had, like, we actually had that in this country. People were buying books on Amazon. Not a lot of people, but enough that this became a, you know, a a big thing. But it's like, you know, as a kid, I was just like, it's like, well, you know, maybe I'll buy my books on Amazon. Maybe I'll go to the bookstore or whatever. But when I started buying all my books on Amazon, like, I didn't see any change anywhere. It didn't seem like I was making some sort of big momentous decision, you know, just like in the same thing. Like, like I, I actually do remember, like you said, like, you know, the, I remember, uh, yeah, I remember like exactly where I was in the whole thought process when I was like, somebody was talking to me about something and I was like, Oh, I guess I could get that on cable. And I was sitting there in my room and I was thinking to myself, wait a minute. And I was looking around and I remember I had, uh, I had blockbuster and Netflix, uh, the year that Blockbuster went under. So I had like the, I had the Blockbuster card and then I had the Blockbuster.com subscription and then I had Netflix and I was thinking about it and I was just like, hold on. 
I'm not gonna watch this live. I'm gonna like like a, I'm I'm just gonna wait. And then I was like, do I watch anything live? And I was like, well, all of the shows that I was watching are all and like I actually like went through and I was just like, huh. Because like my my dad complained when I was in high school that I was watching too much uh too much TV, so he wanted me to like have uh to go down to like one or two hours, and so like I every once in a while I'd be like, well, am I watching more TV than I was watching that year? So let me think about it. So I actually sat down and wrote the shows down that I was watching, and I was like, hey, these shows are all off the air except for like The Simpsons, and with The Simpsons, like um, it's like you know I, I watch it if it's on, but I'm not like watching it like every episode like I used to, and I was just like. I don't watch these TV shows that, like, they're not on the air. I don't watch sports. And I was just like, hold on. Why would I get cable? And then I already have this Netflix stuff, which is where I get my movies from. And I was just like, holy crap. And then, and like, and then the crazy thing after that, I was just like, hold on. I, the Netflix and the Blockbuster stuff, I just put DVDs in my computer. And I was thinking, it's like, well, you know, like, again, like, you have this idea that you're going to move out and get your own place. And then you're going to buy all these things that you don't have space for right now, but you'll, you'll need them later. And I was just like, what? But then right. why do you need them at right. all? Because it's then it's just like, are. why would I buy a TV yeah. when I'm watching all this stuff on my computer? Like, I was just like, hold on. Couldn't I, Cause I had a really small, like, you know, like 10 inch screen or something like that. And I was just like, well, I don't know. If, I don't know if you know this because I know it. But when you get the large TVs and you try to, like, watch the internet on those large TVs, they really suck up a lot of bandwidth. Yeah. And, like, you could, seriously, like a big TV like you get at Best Buy sucks up a huge amount of bandwidth. Yeah. But one thing I've noticed, um, for, for, for real, is we've actually made this decision not just for the kids, but for the adult, but for the older people. Like... I mean, you know, people are like, I don't want to switch over to streaming because I want to get cable. I want to keep getting cable. And you, you try to, no, it saves money, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, but I don't want to have all the apps. And it's so crazy that, you know, that to me that some people want to spend all this money just so they can have TV over a wire. It's totally but that's just like how, like, I guess, like, that's the kind of the things that, like, there's there's a lot of things that I realize that you know or basically I guess like what, what it all kind of boils down to is there's a lot of things in life that we don't think about and it, like we're spending a lot of money and time on them but not, we're not really thinking about it because for whatever reason or how things are set up it's just set up for you to think about it as like well this is the way to do things and if that thing doesn't change in your lifetime then you never really, most people won't get to the point where they ever will think about it because like, I, like even when I was a kid, I would go to these parties and sometimes, uh, like when I was younger, a lot, my mom didn't have any, you know, parents didn't have any friends that were, that had kids. So they would take me to parties sometimes and I would just be the only kid there and I would just be sitting there by myself and every once in a while someone would come over or my mom would be like, all right, I'm going to, you know, talk to you for five minutes. But I would hear people say things and like, I remember hearing adults complain about cable like in the 90s like i remember hearing a guy just going on a rant and he's just like i don't want like all he's like he'd actually like i don't know if he read an article or if he had like called somebody or or where he got the numbers from but he was just like i called the cable company or i did this i did this and like he like done the math and he's just like bro like 
this is all about sports. I don't watch sports, but my cable bill is like 80 bucks a month because I, there's no package that doesn't have sports on it. And he's like, why? And he was, he was really letting people have it. And then somebody was just like, but there's like, what, what are you talking about? Like, you're either going to have cable or you're not. And it's like, what are you like? Why are we listening to you for like 15 minutes? And then he stopped. But the thing is like, that was something like, that was something that every, like, like I said, from that experience and from reading about things later, I realized that like a lot of people felt like that guy felt, but there was no way there. It seems like there was nothing to do about, right. There was no option. As a business person, someone might like, you know, if like Bill Gates had been at that party, or actually not even if, because we know that there's people that actually did this, you know, and it just didn't work out for him. But there's, there's a lot of people that heard that conversation or had that idea. And they're like, Hey, why can't we negotiate with the cable company? Like, like we know why the cable company doesn't want to do it because for them, it's just like, no, we got to charge everybody for the most expensive thing because otherwise we wouldn't have the money. But it's like, we know why the cable company won't budge, but there has to be some way with technology or something to get out of this situation. And if we could get out of the situation, we could steal all those guys like him away from the cable company. And then, you know, like whatever happens to the cable company, like screw them. But the average person doesn't care about all that. And you're like, well, if it, when I used to work in the TV business, there was this thing that you would hear where you'd hear like, eventually it'll go a la carte. Like the channels will go a la carte. And everybody was like, Oh, that's a great idea. And then somebody actually did the math and they were like, do you realize that if that really happened, the only channels that would be around would be, let me remember. Cause it was crazy. It was ESPN. I don't even think Fox was. I think Fox Sports just started. But it was like ESPN, Fox Sports. And uh, basically like all your lifetimes and hallmarks and all that would basically just go by the wind. And, you know, that's kind of what we have now. Except now I don't even think we have that. Like I have a buddy that like, you know, when I tell him that I stream, he's like, why don't you just pirate everything? I'm like, because I don't want to, you know, you know, hello, it's illegal. (laughs) But yeah, it's like, and and like the weird thing is like for most of these things, like I said, like for the cable thing, like that guy that would, that was at that party, you know, talking to everybody, like he wasn't the first person to, you know, to, to come up with that idea. Like just that one thing, like people thought about that, you know, probably for like 30 years. And then nothing happened until the technology made it like really easy for someone to make a profit on something that made this possible. And then like, you know, since I had like, what was it? So I think I had the Blockbuster subscription and like, felt like that was like 2010 or something. So, I mean, from Blockbuster.com coming out until the cable companies basically just getting wrecked, like that was, that was maybe like a five year period. So you had 30 years of people, you know, talking about this stuff. And then for, for most people, it just felt like overnight, like out of nowhere, or like, imagine being someone that had like, you know, if you, you know, if you were the little old lady that had like the all, you know, all analog, you know, set up in your home, everything seemed fine. And then one day you get a thing in the mail or the people on TV are saying, oh, by the way, your TV is not going to work tomorrow. And you're like, what? Why? Why would my TV stop working? My, my TV is fine. And they're like, oh, well, we're going to switch over to digital. Why are we switching over to digital? Well, you know, there's all this stuff happening and, you know, the, the, the kids like digital and it's, you know, it's it's cheaper for us to do stuff. And you're just like, 
wait, what? Why does that matter? And it's it's like that, but it's like that just kind of happened to a lot of people where it's like you had your like it's like you're just saying like with the cable. So there's people that what that for whatever reason want to pay for cable, and depending on where you are or what your system or what your setup was, you might just get a letter in the mail one day that's like, oh yeah, we're not going to do that anymore because it's no longer profitable. And you're like, what? But I paid. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is, huh. go ahead. Yeah, but I was just going to say it's question. like that. Like I feel like that's what. It's like that's like the opposite experience of what the kids are getting is that there are people that are doing all these things because that's the way we've always done it. And then, like I said, the cable company doesn't tell you this or the Internet company. But then one day you just get a letter in the mail. It's like, oh, we're stopping the service. And it's just like, but all of my friends at the old folks home have cable with the 32 sports channels. Why is this going away? So let's build this out. What do you think the next like disruptor is going to be? That one, it so that like when you're getting into like the deep futurism stuff, like it's, it's well, I guess like uh, as far as like the internet, the thing that I would actually started predicting, like even when I was in high school, is that I always felt that like we had like a ton of websites for everything, and in my mind, I was like, five websites are going to take over everything, and everyone thought I was crazy, and I was like, no, 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 it's going to be. I, I want to say that I predicted Amazon, but I can't remember exactly. I didn't write it down anywhere, but I was just like, I think I predicted MySpace, Amazon. I probably said something like YouTube, but I didn't know about the actual site that was like YouTube. And I was like, there's going to be five websites and they're going to be really big and they're going to be so big that no one can compete with them. But which is actually, and like, like I said, people that heard me say that in high school, they're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. How would that happen? And then that actually happened. And so now the big question is going to be, so I guess like the the first sort of like fork in the road is like with Facebook and the other big tech companies where is the government going to come in and say this has to be broken up? And then if that does happen, is that something that can conceivably be done? Because like Facebook specifically, you know, like what would you break Facebook up into? Like it's, it's not AT&T. You could say separate the website from Messenger, but like if everybody has facebook and facebook messenger does it matter if you rename one of the companies that it's effectively like it won't be the same thing as breaking up at&t because if you if you have well, what did we have here uh southern bell so southern bell and pack bell no one has both of those unless you have two houses with two different landlines and even though that we have millionaires <laughs> there's not enough people in this country that have multiple houses and multiple time zones for that to be any sort of important thing. But if you were to break up Facebook. Well, I think Facebook, I'm sorry. I think I'm not sure, but I think Facebook is an ad company mostly. And it's an ad company that basically steals your data and sells oh, yeah. it. So maybe they want to break that up, but I don't know how you're right. I don't right. know how and like they would. And so like that, that's going to be like the, like I said, like that's like the first fork on the road, because if we, if we break up Facebook or any of the other big tech companies there, or if we even attempt it, like the big question is like the companies that have survived, like basically like the comp the, the situation that I was predicting, like in 2000, like, like that happened, but those companies effectively can't be broken up into, into anything like YouTube, like YouTube is effectively a TV network, but it's not based on where you live and it's profitability. Isn't really based on where you live. And, not only that, breaking YouTube up into 
like regional corporations actually destroys the profitability of it because now what you're doing is you've effectively made YouTube an actual TV station because if you're saying that people if if you were to say that oh well people that upload in this area their their stuff uh the company that runs ads against it like that has to be like YouTube Georgia if YouTube Georgia is separated from YouTube California you've just forced them into being like an actual TV station which they're not going to be profitable so now, if you and you've also forced them into like, I mean, it doesn't matter because I can go to websites in California just as easily as I can go to websites right. in Indiana. I mean, it doesn't actually right, matter because the customer can still like if that was something that Congress did. So yeah, that affects YouTube's like that affects how they're organized. But they could also just say, you know what? Hey, everybody, you know how VPNs work? Wink, wink. Go to, you know, and they could just say, tell everybody to get a VPN and just upload your videos as from the VPN in California. So it's like they're, yeah, so like I said, so the first thing is like, are we going to try to break up big tech companies? And if is that even possible if we try it? Because what's going to happen if we don't try to break up the big tech companies is they're, is they're going to get even bigger. And the thing that I think is going to, so one of those, you know, like, constantly have like the same things happening right because you had aol which runs with time warner and they had a lot of ideas about what they thought uh what they thought they were going to be able to do and uh, i actually read a, a book about it it's called um the master switch which is like a history of uh monopolies or so it's sort of like a history of tech you know of technology monopolies in the united states and one of the things that the guy talks about in there is that you know, the whole AWOL Time Time Warner merge, he's like, well, when you're reading this book, this is something that happened like seven years ago. And to you, it's going to sound very stupid. So I'm breaking. So what I want to do right now is I want to tell you why they thought this was a good idea. And he laid out a, a version of the Internet. And then he says, well, OK, you already know why. But just in case, I'm going to explain to you why this was a. So now that I've explained to you. The meeting because he actually talked to the people in the meeting and he's like here's what they actually said in the pitch meeting here's why they thought this would be a good idea and in case you didn't know here's what that was actually a terrible and stupid idea and basically the thing was the the AOL time warner merge wasn't just about creating a really big company or maximizing profits the specific thing that they wanted to do is create a walled garden where people logged on to aol and if you wanted to get a movie you could only see you know time warner movies because, I mean, you know, that's the thing. Like, AOL wasn't the internet. You, you were logging on to AOL. And if you wanted to have the actual internet and AOL, like, it was like, it wasn't like a big charge, but it was like, you know, five bucks extra or something like that. But under this thing, they're like, well, when you leave AOL to go to the internet before the merge, it, like, it, you, you didn't see any difference. But because they were trying to keep you in this walled garden, they're like, well, we're, we're going to have to, like, put something up that, like, makes it look like, this other website is like a virus or something. And the idea was that they were going to say, well, we're going to sell more of our movies than other uh, companies are going to be able to sell their movies because it'll, it'll just be so much easier to buy our movies than everyone else's. And they were going to try to do something like this for everything that their subsidiary company sold. And obviously if you just look at it that way, it sounds like it's a good idea, right? Because if you remember how AOL looks, if you remember how AOL looked, you know, you, you know, you signed up and there were ads and there are like sponsored links or whatever. And that's what you saw first. 
And to get away from all that, you you had to actually close all that stuff, or you could just open up a browser on top of it and just maximize it. So given that environment in AOL, it made a whole lot of sense because, again, you were seeing all these ads first, and then there's still ads on the internet. And if you have like in-app purchases, they're like, oh, this is going to be so great. And obviously the reason why why it didn't work is big is well I mean some of it was just that they didn't have they they didn't have the market share that they thought they had they thought that they had all these loyal customers but most people actually didn't realize most people that had AOL didn't realize that they were on that they that they didn't have the internet so when they tried to go to other websites and you know do other things and they couldn't because of this I didn't know that I didn't know that most people that. I think I remember that AOL wasn't the real internet. And I actually, no, I do remember that. That AOL wasn't the real internet. And there was like this realization people oh, yeah. had. And it's like. And then. Okay. Yeah. And okay. That, yeah. And it's like. Yeah. And, all right, yeah so, so there's like another thing because like that's something that like, I don't even know if I knew about that when I was, when I was on AOL because I only, uh, so I use the chat rooms a whole lot, and then I got onto like I use the internet at school mostly, and not a whole lot at home. So like so like I think I learned about that from that book, and I was just like what? And I went and I talked to my dad, and he's like, oh yeah, AOL wasn't the internet because you were like I said like you were logging into AOL. So it made sense for them to think that they could like trap the audience in there. But again, the the problem is that people didn't people didn't necessarily realize they weren't on the internet until they tried to do something, and the problem is that. AOL was actually trying to monetize this accidental trick. Like they had done this thing unintentionally. And if you asked them, they would be like, oh yeah, well, if you are having problems, you should get on the internet through this way. Or like I said, like, I think there might've even have been like a, there might've been like an extra charge. So if you had the free AOL. So if AOL wasn't the internet, okay. If AOL wasn't the internet, what was it? Like, was it just a set of programs they uh, set up Yeah, for everybody to use? So if you then... look at, like, the, uh, like, if you get, like, a dictionary or whatever, and you look at the difference between, like, uh, the large, it's, like, the the local area network and the wide area network. So AOL was technically a, uh, like, a local network, and you were dialing into it, and you got their server. So the difference is that, like, when you're on, so, like, when you're on, uh, so now when you, when you log into the internet, like, when you, like, log on to somebody's Wi-Fi, you just have a connection between your computer and a router, uh, a nearby router for like the ISP. And then your browser allows you to go f to go through that router and get to a website. Whereas with AOL, you didn't have, you were, you were like on the phone line dialing into one of their numbers and you just had a collection of programs. But when you open up the browser inside of AOL, you were actually so like it looked like a browser, but you were actually just running a program that accessed other programs, and they are formatted with HTML, so it looked like a website, but you were actually just running an, another like another app, which is how uh, like how the chat program worked, and you were sending all this stuff over their network. So it's like it's a, it was it was a really weird thing, but like I said, they they didn't mean to trick people. The if you look at other programs that existed or other ISPs at the same time, they all worked the same way. But the problem is that people didn't know, like, they were selling people something, and what AOL sort of took over the market is because they realized that, like, well, we can't monetize the internet, but if we can make the internet easier to use, we could sell that. But once they did that, people sort of forgot that they weren't on the internet because they were just, 
you know, you had your news, you had chat rooms, all this other kind of stuff. So like they had tricked, they had tricked people. That was kind of before. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. But I said, like, so like, hey, well, like they didn't trick people. Like they sold people the thing that they wanted to buy. People wanted to get on the internet, but then the internet was confusing. So AOL made the internet easy, but then they were, they, they realized that they were accidentally tricking people, but it didn't seem to matter. But then the Time Warner merge failed because they were, they found this really weird situation where it really and truly mattered whether or not people were on the internet because they were trying to, like I said, they were actively trying to prevent people or to disincentivize people from buying things outside of AOL. But if you don't know that you're in AOL, you're just going wherever and doing things. And when you try to put another block in there, then people started to look at the cage and they were just like, this is, this is kind of weird. And, you know, people didn't have any sort of like revolt, but it was just something that it, it just didn't, it didn't feel right. And people didn't buy into it. And like I said, like the market wasn't big enough and it just crashed like immediately. But the thing that I think we're going to, the thing that we're actually already seeing is that the thing that didn't make that, like I said, the, the good idea that was actually a bad idea for AOL is a good idea that's actually a good idea for Facebook. Because on Facebook, you ha- it's, it's basically like the same thing, except now, instead of opening AOL and doing all this other stuff and then maybe buying something, you open up Facebook, and Facebook is just like, oh, uh, I heard that you clicked on this link three weeks ago. Here's an ad for that. And maybe you click on it, and you go to the website, and you buy the stuff. That's actually, yeah. I mean, do you think Facebook, I mean, I have this idea that Facebook is going to come out with actual, like, hardware. And I don't just mean Oculus. I mean, actual, like, hardware that you can interface with Facebook on. Because, I mean, I don't know. I I feel like what I see because of my podcast is I see, I swear to God, I, I see fewer and fewer people on Facebook. But I also see more people, like, that are on there to promote things. You know, so like, I feel like Facebook is transitioning to kind of like that old style bulletin board thing that we were talking about earlier. Oh, yeah. And it's like, so the funny thing is that, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because Facebook is, um, so I don't know if they would ever introduce it in America just because of the, like, the specific reasons why they're doing this. But Facebook is actually like, uh, or not, well, not like right now because they, it's, I mean, it is already out there right now, but the, um, They've basically like already started doing that. So uh, the reason they were doing this is because uh, you mean making hardware. If you go to like say, uh, I heard about this in a it's a uh, I believe it's like Wired magazine or Fast Company. Uh, I mean, it might have been something that that I saw like in two separate interviews. But basically, um, there. So one of the like tech magazines uh, did an interview with uh, so part of it is an interview with Zuckerberg and the other part is just them talking about Zuckerberg's strategy, and basically they got a sit down with him and they're like, well, what's the future? Because you're you have the basically like the biggest tech company in the world, and some people say, well, Google's the biggest tech company, you know, it's you know, back and forth, but Facebook is really is a almost unimaginably huge you know, company. And because of that, they have scale problem problems that no company has ever had like in history. Like they're, they have, they have issues that basically like if you just sort of rips the logo off, you would think that you were 
in some sort of like government meeting or like looking at some sort of like government, you know, like, you know, officials arguing about something. And so what they were saying in the interview is that they asked Zuckerberg, like, well, you have investors and your investors want an increase on their investment. And we just want to know, like, is that even possible given where you are right now? And Zuckerberg said that, like, well, here's the thing. Uh, the problem that Facebook has is not a, it's not about like increasing profitability. The thing is, like, we're already very profitable. The, the problem is there's not a lot there's not a lot of ways to increase the profit given the number of people we already have. But he says the upside is there's a lot of people that aren't on Facebook. And so then the person says, well, like, well, that seems like a good strategy. But the problem is the people that are on Facebook already are people in the industrialized world. Like you have almost completely captured the industrialized world. And even with age groups. So like people like over the age of 45 are like the biggest growing demographic like on Facebook. So Facebook is getting older. So the people that were, weren't on Facebook at the beginning, like he's actively going after those people and it's becoming useful for them specifically. So the guy says like, you know, the, the writer's like, well, you know, it's not, so it wasn't like formatted like an interview. He's just saying like, well, I asked this and then he said this and he's like, well, so I say to Zuckerberg, you've got everybody in an industrial country and you've got every demographic of people, even like older people at like specifically like 65 to 70. And it's like, well, at some point, is it really worth it to chase 90 year olds? And he's like, well, that's not what I'm doing. Uh, he says, what we're doing is we're pushing Facebook into the not into the, you know, the non-industrialized world. And the guy's like, well, that's, that's not possible because that's an infrastructure issue. And there's no way to like, like, how are you going to give internet to people that like don't have electricity? And he's his, basically his answer is, well, two things. So in some places they have, you know, computers that can receive Wi-Fi. So all we need to do is give them Wi-Fi. So he actually, so people from Facebook went to countries like, you know, Bangladesh and like Somalia or not Somalia specifically, but I know they mentioned like Bangladesh in the article. I was like, well, so there's some places where we went to them and we, and we talked to the government and we says, hey, well, we want to do this. And the government said, that sounds like you want to build like radio towers in our country. And we just don't like how that sounds. So no. So Zuckerberg, so the people came back and Zuckerberg says, well, is there anything else we could try? And someone was like, well a drone of the right size and enough of them clustered above like a major city, you could put up there. There's a router that we can put on those. And as long as those routers stay within a certain distance of each other, they can get internet from that. So Zuckerberg sent their person who's effectively like a diplomat back into these meetings. And in most of the places people says, wait, you're going to give our people internet that everybody can use. Even if they're not on face, even if they're not going to get on Facebook, you're not going to charge so like you're not charging us, you're not charging them, and all we have to do is just let you in with this shipment, have these things get into the air, and just not let anyone like shoot them down or like accidentally get hit by a plane. And there's like yeah, and everybody said yeah because like what what's the downside? He's literally just giving away free internet. But then in other countries, the they said that well in certain places like i think pakistan was also mentioned it's like well in pakistan because of the way the land is this works really well but you know in certain areas like in bangladesh it didn't work well so what are we going to do so that's when they came out with the idea of actually you know, of actually issuing the hardware so like i said the, this is something that's already out there but you would need to be in like a very uh you need to be in like a third world country that has a lot of mountains in it and you need to be in like a remote area because in the cities they would still do the drone thing but if you go out into the woods in bangladesh 
you will find that there are places where uh, if you ask somebody about the internet, there's no internet cafes. There's just a bunch of kids with uh, what, what what would look like Facebook laptops. But basically what they are is um, basically Facebook independently created like the Chromebook, except that it's a Chromebook that only opens. Uh, so it has like a it has a browser which only goes to certain specific websites. Um, so it's like it's it's sort of like he created a like a Chromebook that runs AOL. Because <laughs> it's, uh, so they have an app that opens Facebook. There's a browser. So it's a Chromebook that opens, I guess it opens Facebook and maybe a browser, or it doesn't open a browser. Well, or, it's, it's kind of weird because like it, it is a browser, but it, it's configured in a way that only allows you to go to certain websites because of, uh, which is, basically like a, a bandwidth thing because they they don't want people to go to like streaming websites because it would like cut the bandwidth or whatever so it goes so they can like do internet searches you open up facebook um and there's like two or three other things and they customize it based on what the on you know the countries and all that kind of stuff so if they you know some country maybe they they might have asked for like an educational website to be put on there so they said well, okay we're going to take this app off and we're going to put on the educational thing and then another country might say, well, this is okay, but uh, in this area, we want like a weather app or whatever. So it makes sense for them to do that in that environment because they're trying to increase their customers. And the thing, and obviously they're trying to increase the customers because this increases the data and they're going to run ads. And you might think, well, those kids aren't going to, because they specifically gave them to like people under a certain age. And you're like, well, they're not going to, you're like, what is a kid like in, in Ghana, in rural Ghana? Like, what's he going to buy? But the thing is, Facebook is saying that, like, they're betting on, at some point, this data will be valuable. And it's worth it to us to just have this laptop out there for 10 years, and that kid never buys anything and becomes an adult, and maybe he becomes a coder. He says, like, it's worth it for us to gamble on that in, like, 20 different markets, because there's, like, well, if we don't do this and somebody else does this, we have no way to catch up to them. But if we do this, there's, like... He's like, well, if it works and we did it first, it's awesome. If it works and somebody else did it did it first, that sucks for us. But it's like, even if we spend all this money, and because I asked him, like, what happens if you spend all this money and you don't get anything from it and you can't sell the data? And he kind of didn't answer that question. He's like, well, the, the data will be used for something else. And it's like, that sounds creepy. But but yeah, so basically the, the, yeah, the idea is that <laughs> so Facebook already has basically this thing. And so the only question is, is there going to be a situation in the future that might make that profitable for them to do in the U.S.? And the only two things I can think of that's, that we already have that might make that profitable or make it would make any sort of sense is you might say, well, if we have like a giant backlash against social media, Parents are still going to want to say, well, you know, because like right now what we're seeing is that we had a little, we had an anarchy period, you know, for people that are like my age where your parents didn't know anything about the internet and people were just out there doing crazy things. And then sometimes bad things happen. And then sometimes people were able to stop bad things from happening, but it was still scary. And now we have the, you know, people in my generation that have kids. Now they're trying to be a little bit smarter about it. And you've got parental controls and you put the computer in the living room and you do all this other stuff. But there's still the whole question of like, well, I there, there's still the problem of like my kids on the Internet and I want to be able to monitor that process. And we want to have like a kiddie pool version of the Internet. So right now we're trying to create a kiddie pool version of the Internet uh, artificially with parental control apps. 
But at some point in the future, something might happen that makes people even frightened of that because the, maybe the app gets hacked or maybe something really bad happens and people are just freaked out. So at that point, someone might say, you know, it's, it's harder to hack hardware than it is to hack software. So what if we just created a completely different version of Facebook and said, if we're under this age, you have to be on this version. And that version is only available on this physical device. And that physical device doesn't access the internet. Now, if something, if some bad event happens that causes parents to rebel against having kids on social media at all, even with parental apps, that is a situation where I think Facebook would be forced to say, well, luckily for you, we already have a thing that solves all of these things because we can give your kid, yeah. Well, I can, I can tie those things together for you because I've seen it. I've actually, I've actually seen it. When you go on Facebook and your and your interest is not in your friends or your family or pets or you know nieces and nephews or or whatever that kind of thing, but your interest is in boosting IP, like boosting yeah. intellectual property. That's when you get back to the I don't know if I'm talking to a forty year old or I don't know if I'm talking to a twelve year old yeah. that you were talking about earlier. Um, and you can actually get into a situation where you're literally talking to kids and it's like, I don't know if I want to do that. Like, I don't know if I want to have this child on my podcast for a whole host of reasons. Right. Yeah. And then like, I don't know. So it's like, maybe the adults are going to be like, you know, let's get back to some kind of a kiddie pool situation. Because one thing, like you were saying earlier, like the generation's, have stopped mattering as much. Well, where I thought you were going to go with that was would be like, you know, I can remember when a 16-year-old or a 14-year-old would not have been into the things that a 40-year-old would have been into. But that's not as true anymore. Yeah. Right? And, like, parents are going to say, like, no, no, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want my kid, like, you know what I'm saying? Right. I want my kid in the walled garden of kid stuff. Yeah, and like that's like I said, like there's I've had a couple of jobs where I was dealing with kids, you know, like at the job, and like that's the thing that I've had. Like to me, that's the thing that has really surprised me because like even though like I know I was on the like, you know, from my mom's point of view, everything like the internet in general just sounded like a crazy environment, and she really didn't like the idea of uh, of me being on it at all. But she's like, well, you know, if you get into like coding or something then I guess it will all have been worth it. And, you know, I actually ended up in IT. So, you know, it's like, it actually, you know, you know, it, it did work out kind of the way she was hoping that it would work out. So, but the thing is, like, yeah, like for, you know, from her point of view, like the, the whole thing just seemed, you know, just lawless, which, you know, is true. But there, there was still a, a sort of idea that she had and most parents had. And, you know, it's kind of true that like a, a, a child's world is very small. And, and the younger you are, the, the smaller that world is. Like when I was... When I was like four and five, I had maybe heard of like five places outside of like where my relative, like as far as like, well, because I remember, you know, I would go to school, uh, we go to church, uh, houses of relatives. And then there was like, I remember like a blockbuster and then like the library and like the grocery store. Like that was, uh, and then I guess I, uh, we, we lived near a fire station at one point. 
and I, I knew theoretically that there was a police station somewhere. I, I just never saw it, but I knew the, the, the fire firefighters were there because we were next to them. So I'd only heard of like those like four or five places or whatever. And the amount of things that I was aware of at like five or 10 or even like, you know, 15, you know, is still like relatively small. So I'm not going to like, if I'm going to get on the internet and like research serial killers and my mom sees me doing this, she like, or like, let's say I'm like 10 at the age of 10, for me to have actually not so this is like a real uh example that i'm going to get into by the way so if i'm on the internet or if i'm in the library and i'm researching serial killers or whatever at, at the age of 10 my mom knows that somebody that she knows brought up this topic because otherwise because she watched all the tv shows that i watched and then i watched the news so it's like wh where would you have gotten the idea of serial killers being a thing so i know that there's somebody in this family or in my friend group that i just need to throw out of a window because they introduced my baby to serial killers. And like I said, like that's something that actually happened. Uh, there was something about uh, Jeffrey Dahmer on the news and someone was talking to me about this at a party and then I was doing something and she's like, where'd you hear about this? And I was like, oh, well, it's that guy, Davey or whatever, your, uh, your friend's husband. And she was like, okay. And she left the room. And then the next time I saw Davey, he came up to me and he's like, man, your mom whooped my butt. And I was like, oh, what are you talking about? I was like, oh, I probably, I shouldn't have talked to you about Jeffrey Dahmer. And I was like, well, why? And he's like, well, you know, you're, you're 10 and that's not a 10 year old thing. And I, I was like, I, I was like, I don't know what is or isn't a 10 year old thing. You told me about it. You know, I'm 10. Like I went to the library and I looked and I looked him up and like that, that was it, you know? But now, now there's, now there's no Davey. Because now your kid could be on, uh, you could get a video about like the Middle Ages, and your video on the Middle Ages leads you into a playlist about Victorian England, and your Victorian England playlist obviously has to mention Jack the Ripper. So now your kid's watching a Jack the Ripper video. You get you told your kid asked you a question about the plague. You told them to watch a video about it, and forty five minutes later, now they're in a serial killer playlist. You come back from whatever you were doing and your kid is watching this crazy Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, video. And you're like, well, I got to stop this. And you grab the laptop and you close the lid or whatever. Well, like I said, like when I had this experience or anybody in my age that had that experience, like they know they're like, okay, there's an adult that's involved here. I'm going to slap the mess out of them. Now I can't put the genie back in the bottle, but I can tell this person don't do this again. Right. And you can see crazy examples of that going all the way back into like uh, something I saw in a, a textbook in, a, in, in college was there was a uh, there was something called a, a there was like a, a masturbation panic where parents were claiming uh, where there are all these people saying that you have to watch people that are with your kids because somebody might tell your kids about this. And it's like, hold on. You thought someone told your kids about this and other than, you know, the actual thing that happens where your kids just figure this out for themselves. But again, you know, in the 1800s, you know, when you're in this crazy environment, parents heard that and they're like, oh, that makes sense. I should watch my friends to make sure they don't talk to my kids about masturbation, you know, whatever. And, and like the idea that you're going to be able to control like all of these thoughts that your kids are having. So you had, but no, but you had an environment where that seemed like you could do that and you could do it to a certain extent. And but now we're like, like even in the 80s and 90s, it seemed like you could tell your friends, hey, don't, you know, you guys are watching that movie. Don't mention that to my kid, you know. But now, like I said, like there is no Davey to yell at. Now there's the YouTube algorithm. 
you don't know what's going to happen when your kid starts watching videos. And yeah. Or, I mean, have you, have you run into this where, okay. Like if you live with people, right. Say like you live with people. Okay. Have you run into it where like your YouTube algorithm and their YouTube algorithm mixed together? I've seen like, like on different devices. I've seen sort of like I I see it like it happen like a little bit, but it's like there's yeah, it's like I, I it happens it happens like every now and again, but it's also a thing where like the things that where I have seen that happen were not a hundred percent because like at one point like when I when I when I moved in we had a uh, there was a smart TV that was left here and I would log in and then so we we're logging in and out so like i would see that kind of stuff and we we're like well does the algorithm do this does the algorithm know that we're both in the same house or is it just the fact that we're both logged into the same device and so like i said like, so yeah i've kind of seen that but like we're not really sure if that's like what's actually happening because at one point we were logging into the same device with two different accounts so i always just assumed it was because of that but i haven't heard anyone else mention that though so that's that's interesting that you've also seen this That's been it. Thanks very much for listening to the History Voyager, a podcast about history. I look forward to hearing from you guys, and I'll leave my email and other kind of things like that in the feed. I'm still looking at talking to business owners about how they're going through the coronavirus or COVID-19. I am eventually going to finish the Spanish Flu podcast. And I'm going to probably try and do a podcast adjacent to the election. That is election night. All right. Take care, you guys. Bye-bye. A sound check can be a very good place to record an album. Many, many, many bands have done that in the past. This podcast comes to you because... I was going to interview a man that you've heard from before on this channel, a man called Alex Johnson. He goes by a citizen journalist. He's done a lot of investigative work over the years, and he's a very, very fascinating human being with lots and lots and lots of research that he's looked at. Basically, he deals with sort of the edge of I don't want to say reality like, you know, like a kind of a, like reality like you would think of as as though it were psychotropic drugs or something, but certainly reality in terms of what's actually happening in the world, I think that's fair to say. This podcast deals with essentially conversations he's had and, and also research into basically the internet and his own recollections of what the internet used to be. And it comes with a very strong not safe for work warning. Let me just say right now, if you're listening to this with children or if you're listening to this at work where everybody can hear it, I strongly recommend that you pause and put on a set of headphones or maybe give this one a skip or listen to it at another point. Um, 
Alex talks about a very interesting conversation he had with somebody who was researching basically the FBI's role in essentially policing child pornography. And that's kind of when this podcast took a turn from a sound check into an actual podcast that I thought you guys needed to hear and it was certainly very fascinating. Anyway, um, Alex is also going to be a guest on this channel again and I thought you guys needed to hear this. But as I've already said, this comes with a very strong not safe for work warning. And I actually was inspired to change the warning for my channel to not safe for work or explicit because of this podcast mainly and some of the heavy themes that it deals with. So if you're somebody that doesn't want to hear uh, heavy themes, uh, I strongly recommend uh, either giving this one a skip or listening to it later. Or certainly if you're listening to it out loud, I would certainly put on a pair of headphones. Anyway, another thing I want to talk about with this podcast is that 